securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. Guest speakers are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Gateway Financial Partners. Content provided is for general information only and not specific advice. No strategy assures success. Delivering financial professionals' insights, thoughts, and cutting-edge strategies from industry leaders on how to build your most successful practice with the freedom of independence. Live from Gateway Financial Partner Studio at our Connecticut headquarters, we bring you Insights for Independence with your hosts, David Wood and S.J. Whittemore. Well, welcome to today's episode of Insights for Independence. I'm David Wood and my wonderful host, S.J. Whittemore, is in the studio with me today, safely distanced at six feet. We are safely distanced. It's a beautiful, almost fall Thursday. It's exciting. We're very excited to have our guest today, Ray Cola, who's an attorney. Welcome, Welcome, Ray. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it, S.J. and David. It's great to be here with you today. So, Ray, what, what, first of all, what, what is a, a black and brown that looks really good on a lawyer? Well, I don't have any black or brown suits that combine black and brown, so you tell me. I'd say it would be a Doberman Pinscher. Well, that wouldn't feel too great, but I, you know, I can see where some people might feel that way, wouldn't they? <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're lucky that Ray, Ray is not that kind of an attorney. No. Ray is an estate and business planning attorney uh, who has spent uh, a, a lot of years being an attorney uh, for large firms in Hartford and recently uh, broke away and established his own practice here in Glastonbury, and we're happy to have you with uh, us today. And it's a, a different kind of law. The estate planning side is is not as confrontational as those other lawyer jokes, right? It's really not. It's really more uh, uh, more of a, of a of a practice where you come together with family members. Certainly, anything can turn a little contentious, but for the most part, you're helping people to uh, come together to provide for their families uh, after they're gone, or in the business planning context, to help them in many cases start uh, their dream. You know, bring it to fruition from start to finish. We work with companies all the way straight to, through to the succession and exit planning stages. So there's a lot of collegial work. There's a lot of working with other professionals all towards a common goal. It's, it's a nice area to practice in. So tell us a little bit about your background and, and kind of where, where you went to law school and, and, and kind of what you've done up until this point. Sure. I'm a, I'm a Connecticut guy, Connecticut native. I uh, UConn undergrad and UConn law school. So I graduated UConn law in 97 and uh, started downtown Hartford uh, at a large transactional law firm for a couple of years doing corporate finance. And uh, after a couple of years, that firm got bought out, and I switched over to uh, another large firm that's pretty well-known and very well-known. And then in the second after that, where I focused primarily on estate and business planning uh, in particular. So after about nine years or so downtown, got a little burnt out of that arena and uh, left downtown and pursued other uh, other practices uh, types uh, in-house most recently and when hanging my own shingle just about two years ago, uh, settled on Glastonbury and here we are moving along. Well, it's a great community. It's great to have you here today. So let's just jump right into things. When you look at, at, at asset protection, we hear a lot about that in the context of estate planning and, and in some cases divorce planning. Give us the definition of asset protection as, as maybe a starting point. Sure. You know, asset protection, to me, it, it is a relatively simple concept, right? A lot of people think of asset protection in terms of their portfolios many times, and they think about, mar- you know, protecting against market loss. That's not at all what we're talking about here. We're talking about protecting your portfolio or any other assets, your home, uh, equity in your home, life insurance proceeds, whatever they may be, from the uh, claims of creditors that could be uh have judgment claims or pursue judgment claims against you. So that could be a creditor in bankruptcy. It could be a 
failed uh, business partner. It could be, uh, unfortunately, being involved in an accident and being sued. It could be a child getting into trouble, uh, being at spendthrift, building up debt. Anybody that can come after your assets, there are ways through proper estate planning to help to mitigate some of that depending on uh, asset level and the client's intentions. So give us some examples of that. So let's just say using the using the marriage uh, context is perfect because a lot of people don't realize they hear the word trust. We use trust to accomplish this. And a lot of people hear the word trust in potential clients and they kind of cringe and they say, well, I don't know. I hear that's for really wealthy people or people that have sophisticated you know, needs and I, I'm really not there. But one of the non-tax benefits to trust, and there are many, is the whole concept of asset protection. And looking at it in the context specifically of, of divorce, we can look at it first at the client level. So we have mom and dad come in and they have a couple of kids and uh, everybody's doing well and family's still relatively young and moving forward. And uh, parents are starting to acquire some assets and mom and dad are sitting down to do their estate planning. And the, 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 it's a difficult uh, topic to talk about, but the concept of an early death and a remarriage down the road comes up. It's something that as an estate planning lawyer, we have to address with our clients as difficult as it can be. And mom and dad start to think, and maybe mom starts to say, you know, if something happens to me first, I, and dad remarries, and maybe there's a blended family or additional children that come along, how can I make sure that what I have at the time of my passing stays with our kids, understanding that he may, dad may go on to have an additional life and second family. And one of the ways we do that is through the use of trusts as a vehicle for estate planning. And it's a very simple concept. You set up a trust for mom and a trust for dad. And at the death of, of the first of them, their portion of the assets uh, go into this trust to be held for the benefit of the surviving spouse, but we place certain limitations on their ability to access the money. And basically, by placing limitations on the access, we make it harder for outsiders, therefore creditors, or in this context, let's just say a future boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife that may be looking to take advantage of a situation or anything like that, that could fall into the broad category of a, of a creditor. The relationship between a beneficiary's control over the assets and the amount of asset protection they have is inverse. So the more control and access you have to that money, the more you're at risk. The more we put that control in the hands of a trustee and make you have to meet a certain criteria or two to get access to the funds, the more protection that we can give you from creditors. So specifically in that parent parental context where mom and dad client come in, that's a key factor that, that most people didn't realize that they could effectuate through estate planning, through the proper use of trust, and in a sense, give them that protection of their assets, making sure that even in the event of a remarriage, that the property would be there for their, for their children eventually. And I think we see that more and more and more where we've got blended families. So we've got, we've All got time. multiple families that come together and then there's a, even potentially a second divorce. And how do you protect all of that money throughout you know, multiple right. generations? And That's I think right. the other thing too is the importance, I think, of updating beneficiaries because we often see assets left behind in that process where, where even though a couple is divorced, the the, the divorced spouse is still the beneficiary of the retirement plan. And then lo and behold, uh, you know, gets remarried and, and uh, doesn't change it. And then we end up with a situation where those assets potentially get passed on to someone who he never wanted to yeah. get them. Can run into all sorts of problems. There are certain uh, there are certain provisions in the law that automatically nullify certain designations, but others aren't. And I always 
you know, in, in talking with other attorneys, especially divorce lawyers that I know, I always stress with them and they know very well, one of the first things that has to get done after a divorce is each couple has to do their separate estate plan. And that includes, if you're doing proper estate planning and comprehensive estate planning, that includes going over all of your beneficiary designations um, and all of your accounts and how they're titled and how they're held. And how often do you think a client should go through that process? Well, I like to, I mean, I think a thorough review should be done any every three three years anyway, but I like to check in personally with my clients every year to two and ask them via email or via phone call and just check in and say, have there been any life changes? Have there been any financial situation changes I should know about? Has there been any big developments? And if so, have them come in and see if there's any tweaking that may need to be done along the way. But as a general rule, I'd say every three years or so, sit down with your estate planning attorney and have them take a, a look at things and just make sure you're still up to date. And then, and then let's also talk for a couple of seconds about how you can have a protect in, in, in the uh, case of divorce. So, I mean, one in two marriages end in divorce, right. unfortunately. So, so what are some things that people can do on the estate planning side to, to protect themselves and their, and their kids in that area? Well, as far as, I mean, one, it, we, I look at it as far as once things leave the family court and the, the court system and there's been a settlement and we, we move on Beyond that point, pre pre divorce, the only thing you can really do is is separate some assets, but that's going to play out the way it plays out based on the, the combined incomes of the family and all and all the things that the family lawyer would take care of. As far as from the estate planning context, after a divorce, immediately, I think most people should after after kind of getting settled back in, sit down with their estate planning lawyer because their documents are basically going to be null and void, and they need new documents in place. And what I think that entails is naming. Of course, at this point, there's no surviving spouse, assuming there's no, excuse me, assuming we're right after a divorce and there's no significant other of any sort in the picture, yet that would be making the kids rather than the spouse, the primary beneficiaries, again, most likely in the event of younger children, using a trust to uh, to protect them as best we can. And is there a way to protect that money from a, a future spouse of the child? So let's say that that child is... 20 years old, is there ways to protect those assets from a future spouse if that's something that the parents want to want to protect from? There really are, uh, David, and that's a great question. And it's something that, you know, a lot of people, a lot of the clients I sit down with for the first time really just aren't aware. They're not educated, haven't been educated to know that, again, this is one of the benefits that a trust can have. So we have we're now at this at the next generation down and, and mom and dad have accumulated some wealth and children are getting out of college now and maybe you know engaged and starting to get married and all these things and what what can we do well what we can do is make sure that any money that children inherit from mom and dad client we make sure that it's protected by holding it in trust and not giving it to them outright therefore it's not a marital asset so the same concept applies. We have a trustee that would handle and invest and distribute the money according to the terms of the trust. And as long as we make that trust a little somewhat restrictive and use certain standards, not overly restrictive, but use certain commonly used legal standards by which the trustee determines whether to pay out money to the children, the children gain a certain level of protection from creditors. Not complete, nothing is really bulletproof in terms of asset protection, especially some of the things that are being touted out there. But but it's really that, that inverse relationship. If, if we had an independent trustee where we say, you know, mom and dad really trust a particular person in their life to make all distribution decisions for the children so that they don't have to 
doesn't have to be for health or education or welfare or any specific need, that would garner even more asset protection. Because if child went to you, David, if you were trustee, if I named you trustee of my children's trusts, and I said, you can only distribute money if you think it's a good idea. That's the ultimate in asset protection. Because I know my kids are going to be taken care of because they can trust you. And I know you're only going to give out money when it's for their benefit. And because of that, Creditors can't come in and demand that you as trustee fork over money for something that the kids did. And that would include keeping those assets out of the marital property side of things in the event of a divorcing child. So it's very important. And I do stress this with clients because even even when we think about many clients come in and it's an exciting time in their lives when they're going to be starting to think about bringing, having grandchildren and sons and daughters are getting married and they love the, the, the soon-to-be in-law And we have to remind them sometimes that one out of two marriages ends in divorce. And with a little bit of pre-planning and just a little bit of extra effort on on my part, we can can really make some inroads into helping protect that family wealth. And I actually know two attorneys who got divorced, a husband, wife, both attorneys who ended up getting some money from one of the parents. And they questioned whether that was a gift to both of them or one of them. And those things can get pretty pretty ugly. And they they probably spend two or three times the amount in legal fees to figure that out than than they ever received. Fighting over the gift. Fighting over the gift. So so let's just go through a real-life scenario. So if if I'm a a 20-year-old and my parents... uh, uh, unfortunately passed away and I inherited uh, $100,000 that was put into a trust in real life, uh, what type of parameters and how could I protect? And, and let's just say that I met someone, got married, uh, that money was still in the trust and I wanted to go buy a, a marital asset like a house. Is there a way to, to do that and purchase it in the trust? Or, or let's go through an example like that, kind of in a real life scenario. How would I work on trying to protect those assets if I had, had inherited those, but wanted to protect them potentially from my future spouse? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And really, it depends. There's a lot of facts that go into determining the answer to that question, depending on the scenario. However, I do think that the more, I can say that the more you keep these assets separate from the spousal connection, from the spousal life, if you purchase a house with your trust, and even though you have it named in the trust, and you spend a full marriage living there, and then there's a divorce. I'm not a family lawyer, but I would say that under those circumstances, I would be very concerned that that house could be up for grabs, at least a portion of it, because you're now giving that benefit to the, you're, you're getting them used to a certain lifestyle. You've used that trust property that was supposed to be just for your own use for certain needs beyond the scope, and that opens you up to more liability. So potentially it might be okay to take part of the deposit, the the, the down payment out and then fund the balance through marital assets. And then that way I would keep the money in the trust that was clearly separated from something like that. Keep it separated. Use it minimally for those kind of combined expense things. Most, to give you some insight into the language, David, I know we're getting a little specific here, but the language that that we use, that lawyers all across the country use, and it's really what we call is an ascertainable standard of distribution. And that's kind of a term of art in, in estate planning law. But what it means is if a, if a, if a trustee needs to make a decision as to whether to distribute money at the request of a beneficiary, or if a judge needed to review a distribution that was made by a trustee or requested by a beneficiary, they can look at this ascertainable standard and make an object. The idea is that they can make an objective decision as to whether that money was properly distributed. So the ascertainable standard language is the beneficiary can receive money for health, education, maintenance and support. 
And within those four words, you can garner the type of, you, you, you can feel the kind of uh, support that we're getting to. And a, and a judge and a trustee can use those four words under the eyes of the law to make an objective decision. So daughter comes in because she wants a new convertible, not going to happen. Son comes in because uh, he's a little behind on rent, different story. So education, absolutely. Uh, we, we want to promote certain things, but we, it gives us that standard. Vacation to Europe? No, not going to happen according to those terms. But, um, you know, the ability to buy a new car when your old one isn't working properly? Absolutely. So we have those kind of standards involved, and they're very reasonable, and they're they are in thousands of trusts, tens, hundreds of thousands of trusts across across the country. And that's really the standard. And if the, if the child sticks to those standards... The amount of money they receive pursuant to those standards could be considered income or a bit of a marital asset, but it's very minimal con- con- compared to the $100,000 that's sitting in the trust or the million dollars that may be sitting in the trust. We're talking only about some income and maybe discretionary payments of principal, so relatively low dollar amounts. If, if, if mom, if child and new spouse are using that money um, getting money out of the trust for just a bunch of frivolous things and they're going through it and they're spending it, divorcing spouse down the road is going to have a good chance for their lawyer to say, uh, child didn't keep that as separate money. That was marriage money. Look what, look what they spent it on. So again, keeping things separate is, is really critical. If you look, you know, we're just coming uh, in, in the midst of COVID and, and a huge stimulus package from Know, from the government of trillions of dollars. What, what do you? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but if you were to sit and look ahead, what, what do you think the impact to estate taxes are going to be moving forward? Well, you know that's a great question. Again, there, <laughs> there's so much unknown. I think my opinion and the opinion I formed this opinion based on some of the leading uh, minds in my field that I follow at on a national level that I that I follow um, their teachings and their writings and their lecturings really feel that regardless of whether there's a change in administration in the fall, um, there will likely be some kind of, a, of an estate tax increase in the form of a dropping of the exclusion from $11.58 million just to help pay for the bailout. I think it's you know obviously safe to say if there's a change in administration, that would certainly happen. When and to what degree, we don't know. But most of the leading minds out there are feeling we're going to probably end up back into that sunset area of maybe in the five, six million dollar exclusion mark. And couples that are right now, families that are well comfortably under that federal limit are going to be in a, in a much different area. And it actually affords some really interesting uh, kind of late year uh, planning opportunities for the, for the right clients, which could almost be the topic of another, of another uh, segment. But um, I do think that people that fall into that middle range, people that are in uh, maybe the, the three, four, five, six million dollar asset level range um, should start to think about what they may be uh, able to do to mitigate uh, the tax impact in the event that there is an increase in, in the estate taxes and not to wait till it's too late to act. If you fall in that middle category, there's some stuff we can start doing right now. So, Ray, I, I think I think it's important to point out that, you know, especially when you have money passing between different generations and, you know, different marriage situations, that it's really important to bring in an estate or business planning lawyer. But how, how does that work with, you know, other financial professionals, like, for instance, financial advisors? Like, how, how does that relationship really work in a positive way for clients? Well, you know, working with a, with a client's financial professionals, uh, which includes, I think, for me, for, first and foremost, their financial advisor, and then also 
especially in a, in, a, in a business planning context, certainly their CPA as well, sometimes their life insurance agent if it's other than their financial person. But that's really the team that a person has to help them with this sort of thing, whether it's in a business planning context or an estate planning context. And it's very critical to me that we're all on the same page and in communication. I actually ask all my new clients if they will grant me permission. I have them sign off that I have the ability to talk with those other professionals, if they will allow me to, to pick up the phone and have conversations. You know, it, it, a lot of times financial advisors, there could be a conversation about tax mitigation, you know, making some trades and selling something at a gain and, and how's it going to impact, uh, you know, the estate, the, the estate scenario. And we, we, one of the things we do because we don't deal with a lot of estate taxes anymore, we do income tax planning under the estate tax arena. So when you have an estate and you have income coming and we do some tax planning. So we're always working closely with CPAs and financial advisors. And I really think that it needs to be that way for the client to get the service that they really need. There's a lot to consider with all of this and it has to be a coordinated effort, I think. Absolutely. I would agree. And I think often people wait to the last minute. So that's uh, probably that's a conversation right. that's, that you're better off having in, in September than you are, uh, uh, between Christmas and New Year's, Absolutely. because your your ability to do any of that planning stuff is probably great, uh, greatly diminished. Yeah, you're pretty much you're pretty much shut out at that point. Well, Ray, listen, hey, thank you very much for your time today, and I, I think we definitely would like to have you back because I think That'd one be of the great. one of the things I see with the estate planning side is that there's clearly some differences between what somebody with a, a million and five million or ten million dollars of assets should be could be doing. And I think we're in a, also in a fluid environment. So I think to get some updates from you a couple times a year, I think would be great. And uh, and, and, and and just have a little bit more dialogue uh, re- regarding some of the different planning levels and what things could be done in those areas. If folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to uh, to reach out to you? Best way to reach me is either by email, which is my name, Ray Cola, R-A-Y-C-O-L-L-A at colalaw.com. Or you can always try my office number, which is 860-430-6452. And my website is simply www.raycola.com. Uh, excuse me. dot com just changed it. <laughs> well, just to make it just to make it easy, right? Right, just to make it easy. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, Ray, thank you very much for uh, spending some time with us today. Thank you we, guys for having me. I really appreciate look, David SJ. I really do. Of That's course. awesome. And we uh, Thanks, we, we definitely look forward to having you back. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Ray. On this side of the law, on that side of the law. Who is right, who is wrong, who is for and who's against the law? Well, you see, I didn't really mean you any harm. But I simply couldn't make it on the farm. When the land won't give a lot, you gotta do with what you got. And all I got's the muscle in my arm. Well, I wouldn't ever hurt my fellow man. And mister, seems to me you'd understand I'm just trying to help myself without hurting anybody else And a man has got to do the best he can On this side of the law, on that side of the law Who is weak, who is wrong, who is for and who's against the law